0: Today we're going to be looking at the, what the Bible says about the capital city of heaven. Before we look at Revelation 21, we need to understand something, that on the night of Jesus' death, the Lord Jesus Christ made a wonderful promise that we shouldn't forget, and it was made to all who believe in Jesus Christ. John 14, verse 1, Jesus said, "...let not your hearts be troubled." Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now you'll notice there in that passage in John 14, Jesus mentions the Father's house. What's He talking about? The Father's house that Jesus referred to here is Mentioned in Revelation 21, it is a city called the New Jerusalem, the place where God will live with His people forever. It's the present heaven right now where God dwells with all of the angels. It's where Christians go when they die. because the Bible says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this wonderful place, the Bible says, as we'll see here in a moment, is is one day going to descend to be the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. If you're not familiar with the new heaven and the new earth, it's in the previous chapter here. It's in Revelation chapter 21. And we need to understand something: that the Apostle John was the one whom the Holy Spirit used to write this book, and. Apostle John's view of heaven's capital includes several things that we're going to take note of today. First of all, we're going to see the general appearance of this capital city. We'll, we'll see what the Bible says about its exterior design, as well as the interior character, the, or the sorry, the internal character, and even we're going to look at the privileges that the inhabitants of this city will enjoy. So, first of all, let's look at its general appearance, the general appearance of the capital city of heaven, which is the New Jerusalem. So, let's, let's look at what the Bible says here. Revelation 21, verse 9, starting verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We'll stop there for the moment. So as... John's vision opened up here for us. Notice an angel appeared, calling his attention to this city. And the capital city, notice, is described as a bride. And the bride is important to take note in Scripture. It's drawing its character here from the occupants of the city. Those occupants, by the way, consist of the bride of Christ. By the way, that's a title originally given to the church, but uh, now is, uh, of course, going beyond just the church age, and it's encompassing all the redeemed people from all ages, including the Old Testament. The other interesting phrase there you'll, you'll take note of is, the city is, is further defined as the wife of the Lamb. Of course, the Lamb is referring to Jesus Christ here. And you say, well, why, why is this, this bride here described as the wife of the Lamb? Well, that's because the marriage of, of the bride to the groom has already taken place. We've, we read about that in chapter 19. And so John's incredible vision began here when the angel carried him away in the spirits. And when he received these visions that, that are comprising the whole book of Revelation... The Apostle John was, we need to understand, he, at this time he's a prisoner of Rome, the Roman Empire. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. But he was transported from there in some way in an amazing spiritual journey. He's able to see these amazing visions. So John's visions were, by the way, there weren't dreams, but spiritual realities which we hopefully are looking forward to. Notice the first stop. The angel takes them to this place, and it's described there in your Bible as a great and high mountain. You ever been on a mountain? It's amazing. If if the fog is is not covering what you want to see, go up on a high place. The, The views are awesome, aren't they? You can see long distances, and that's what the angel's done here for John. And so from this vantage point, the angel showed John the holy city. Now, that's one artist interpretation. Of course, you could never, no artist would possibly be able to do this justice. John's limited understanding of language can't possibly do it justice either. But notice where the city came from. There are some things we can understand about this holy city. John says it came down out of heaven, or from heaven. Well, sorry, out of heaven, from God. Well, what's that emphasizing for us? Well, we understand, hopefully, it has a divine origin. In other words, it's coming from God. It's a city, as Hebrews says, whose architect and builder is God. Now, it should also be noted that what's described here is not the creation of heaven. It's just merely a descent of what already exists, what has existed from eternity past. And, by the way, is now situated in in the center here of the new heaven and the new earth notice the most distinguishing characteristic of the capital city is that it is the throne of the eternal almighty one and and therefore notice it had the glory of God in it that's what the Bible says glory of God is there and you say well what does that mean what does it mean the glory of God it's a that's a rich expression. That glory is going to reach its fullest expression here. It's going to be unlimited. It won't be confined in any way. Like, like maybe in the Old Testament time period, God's glory he he, he kind of con, confined and limited his glory in the Holy of Holies in that tabernacle. But here, God is, is unlimited. He's no longer confined. So what is the glory of God? Well, here's my working definition. It is the sum total of His attributes. And often, God shows this total of His attributes by just blazing light, which, of course, we see here in our text. So describing the effect of God's glory, radiating here from the New Jerusalem, notice John notes The brilliance, it was like a very costly stone. He mentions the word jasper. It's a stone of crystal clear jasper. The word brilliance refers to something from which light radiates. So to John, as he's seeing this, the heavenly city appeared maybe like a giant light bulb. He didn't didn't have light bulbs back then, but that That's the best thing i i can I can think of, or for him, maybe it was like the sun, and so the city appeared to the apostle like one gigantic, precious stone. I hope you're familiar with Jasper; God made it. it's beautiful. Jasper does not refer to necessarily the modern stone that 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 we've given the name, but you need to understand it. it was something in John's day that was opaque. And by opaque, it's it's uh, the stone was translucent, which just means it was almost transparent. Maybe kind of like uh, often the the windows of our bathrooms, right? They're 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 not often clear, right? They they make them opaque or a little translucent to let the light through, but you don't want uh, peeping toms outside looking into your bathroom, right? So so they they kind of uh, make them foggy, if you will. That's kind of the idea here. The word jasper is best understood as referring to a diamond, a very costly one at that, just crystal clear, unblemished, but it's able to allow the light through. So kind of summing this this section up here, heaven's capital city is pictured as a huge, flawless diamond refracting the brilliant, blazing glory of God throughout the new heaven and the new earth. God is the light of heaven. And then John moves on to talk about the exterior design of the capital of heaven, starting there in verse 12. Some amazing descriptions of this. Human language is just inadequate to fully describe just how magnificent the believer's eternal home is. But notice what John does mention. First of all, he says the city has a great and high wall heaven doesn't need a wall (laughs) there's no enemies in heaven like there 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 were in john's day but what does that indicate well it's indicating it's this isn't just some airy fairy nebulous floating place it's heaven is not clouds like it's often portrayed on the internet it actually has specific dimensions god gives limits of this capital city And the other thing that needs to be mentioned, John says, it has gates. You can leave and enter in through these gates. In fact, specifically mentions 12 gates, doesn't it? And so you'll see that, I don't know what the gates of heaven look like, but that's one artist's impression of the gates of heaven. And so at those gates, the Bible says here, notice 12 angels are stationed to attend God's glory, to serve His people here. The gates had the names of the twelve tribes of Israel written on them, so you'll see that on the screen there. And those names, of course, are for all eternity, are going to be there reminding us of God's work, who He is. Reminding us for all eternity of God's covenant relationship with His people and with this, this insignificant nation of Israel. Notice the names, by the way, were arranged symmetrically. And You'll you'll see that, three of of them on each side. Very interesting. Notice also the the massive wall of the city here is anchored by 12 foundation stones. Of course, the Bible mentions 12 stones of the 12 names of the apostles. Now, why why would God do that? God loves memorials. He, He loves us to do things like the Lord's Supper and baptism and sacrifices and these sort of things that just cause us to remember who He is and what He's done and doing. And so these stones are commemorating God's covenant relationship with the church. Of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the apostles are the foundation of the church. And so God has put their names right there on the foundation walls of the capital city of heaven to remind us of what He has done. And then at the top of each gate was the name of the tribes of Israel. Bottom of each gate was the name of one of the apostles. And so notice the layout of the gates here pictures God's favor on all of His redeemed people. By the way, that includes those under the old covenant, Israel, as well as those of us who are under the new covenant. We're all all included. And then a very curious thing occurs here the bible we we just read talks about an angel speaking with john and this angel takes a measuring rod to measure the city so we don't have to guess how big the city is we don't have to guess about the gates and the walls and and notice you you might be a little confused by these measuring distances so let me help you out okay How, how big is the city some of your Bibles might say 12,000 furlongs. Some of you might use a different word. Uh, in verse 16. Well, let's, let's read starting verse 15. It says, The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia or some of your bibles might say four longs and you say well how how big is that well that's about 1,380 miles stadia was about 607 feet or 185 meters so that's the measuring distance we're talking about here so it says that its length and its width and its height are equal he also measured its wall. 144 cubits. A cubit was about 18 inches, approximately 45 centimeters. So often, often people would use the hand to the elbow as kind of a measuring rod or stick for them. And so if you just take 144 of those, that's, that's the size of the wall. So notice 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth burl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. We'll stop there. That's giving us some wonderful things to talk about. So, we've got something approximately uh, 12,000 furlongs, just means the walls, again, about 1,360 or 80 miles to something like 2,200 kilometers. You say, well, how big is 22 kilometers? Well, keep this in mind. New Zealand is approximately 1,600 kilometers long, top to bottom, approximately. Right, so we're talking about something that is a cube that's bigger, longer than New Zealand. This is just the capital city. And Henry Morris, uh, a phone helpfulest as I was meditating upon this, he points out that that the cube-shaped city is well-situated for the existence of people who now have glorified bodies. We will not be limited by physical bodies like we have at the moment. So here's what he says. I'll give you a quote. He said, "...it should be remembered that the new bodies of the resurrected saints will be like those of angels." no longer limited by gravitational or electromagnetic forces as at present. Thus, it will be as easy for the inhabitants to travel vertically as horizontally in the New Jerusalem. Consequently, the streets of the city may well include vertical passageways as well as horizontal avenues, and the blocks could be real cubicle blocks instead of square areas between streets as in a present-day earthly city, end quote. Now here's the point. Jesus talks about in His Father's house are many rooms. So this is the Father's house, this cube. And within that, there's probably lots of little other cubes. And as a believer, the Bible says that Jesus has gone to prepare a room for you. You will have a dwelling place in the capital of heaven. And it's interesting, based on certain assumptions, Morris has calculated that each person's cube would be approximately 75 acres on each side of the cube. That might be a little hard for you to understand just how big that is, but it's bigger than the school property here, okay? So imagine each side of the cube, right, is, is approximately 75 acres. And you say, well, how big is is this particular city? I mean, this sounds big. If all the believers get this huge space like that, well, how big is the city? Well, it's, I've tried to put it here to help you understand. Take Australia as a starting point. The New Jerusalem is going to be bigger than the entire country of New Zealand, or sorry, Australia. That's just on one level. And then you put that up on the other end, it's, it's the same. And so if that city were, let's say, take it to the United States of America, and you were to superimpose the new Jerusalem on the United States, well, that's not the United States, but you get an idea of how big, how big it is. But anyway, for those who understand North America, it would go all the way from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, all the way from the state of Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a big space, plenty of room. If you were to put it where Israel is, that's approximately how big it would be. Bigger than Saudi Arabia. All you know, Israel over into to Saudi Arabia area there. It's massive. God mentions the various material that the city wall was made out of. He specifically mentions jasper again. So that that diamond-like stone is mentioned in verse 11. And So not only is the wall transparent, but notice the city itself is made of pure gold. I've got some gold on my finger here. My wedding ring is supposedly made out of gold. (laughs) But it's not pure gold. It's got a lot of impurities in it. And those impurities make it so that you can't possibly see through it, and there's no light that can go through it. But in heaven, it will be pure. And so it will be translucent. The city it will be, as it's described here, clear like glass. And so the walls and the the buildings are clear. Why is God doing this? Well, one of the reasons he, He says so is so that His glory, His blazing light, will radiate out through everything. John mentions all the various foundation stones of the city. You, you may not be a rock hound lover, whatever you want to call them. You may not collect rocks, so you may not care that much about these. But you can you can look these various things up. I've given you a picture here of of some of the gemstones of the New Jerusalem. They're God's made a variety of different colors, and they're beautiful. But the the, the point is these brightly colored stones are refracting the shining brilliance of God's glory. So imagine God's brilliant light shining through gold and walls and, and and all that just in these various colors. Just what would that look like? Well, boy, it's hard to describe, isn't it? The scene must have been one that was breathtaking for John. Imagine him being there, seeing this. All these various colors flashing out from the new Jerusalem. And then the the very next item in our Bible of the heavenly city that John notices and writes about is the twelve gates. Did you notice the Bible mentions these gates as pearls? Pearls. Not like the ones that some of you ladies might be wearing at the moment. Often we use pearls in jewelry. But these are massive pearls. These are gates. Pearls were highly something that was highly prized, even during John's day. Great value to them. But these pearls are not like any pearls that you've ever worn or seen. I hope you understand pearls the way God makes a pearl is he uses an oyster something that irritates the oyster maybe a piece of sand somehow gets in the oyster and then God has made the oyster to coat that piece of sand and the oyster keeps coating keeps putting more coats on and eventually it kind of it's kind of like a snowball effect the and eventually within the oyster you end up with a A pearl. But these gates of heaven are massive, single, gigantic pearls. Twelve of them. One at each gate. Now why would this be mentioned in our Bible? I've been pondering this for many years. And I must say, I'm very helped by various commentators and people who, who are older and wiser than me. But there's some spiritual truth, I think, that is illustrated by this. Why is God mentioning these pearly gates? Well, here's what one commentator said by the name of John Phillips. I'll put the quote here on the screen for you. He said, How appropriate. All other precious gems are metals or stones, but a pearl is a gem formed within the oyster, the only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound. And around the offending article that has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The glory land is God's answer in Christ to wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to open shame. How like God it is to make... The gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl. The saints, as they come and go, will be forever reminded, as they pass the gates of glory, that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. Think of the size of those gates. Think of the supernatural pearls from which they are made. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by those gates of pearl? Throughout the endless ages, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immensity of the suffering of Christ. Those pearls, hung eternally at the access routes to glory, will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree, and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them to share his home. End quote. we will have no excuse to forget what Christ did. Well, let's move on to look at the internal character of the capital city of heaven. Well, let's start reading in verse 21. Verse 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's talk about the internal character of the capital city of heaven. So notice John's angelic guide here took him inside. And as he entered the city, Apostle John notes several things. He, he, he First of all, he sees streets of the city. Notice they are pure gold like transparent glass. Now, the picture on the screen could never do it justice. It's just one man's or lady's interpretation of it. But the streets were made of a high-quality pure gold. Everything there, by the way... Notice is transparent letting and allowing the light of God's glory to blaze through it unrestricted. And once inside the city, did you notice what John sees? first thing John notes, at least for us, is there is no temple in this city. Now, that's very different from John's day. Even in our own day, you'll you find churches and various temples and mosques and so forth everywhere around the world and there's no need for a temple here in the new jerusalem you say why That just seems strange to a lot of people why is that well notice john says the lord god himself and the lamb jesus christ are its temple you don't need a temple you don't need a building because you have god There's going to be no need for anyone to go anywhere to worship God, because God's everywhere. Life will be worship. Worship will be life. and We see here believers will now constantly be in His presence. Next, John notes here that the city has no need of the sun, no need of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So notice the new heaven and the new earth here are different, radically different from our present earth, because we we do need the sun. We need the moon. We need artificial light to be able to see. It's very different. So there'll be no night. Another detail is the gates are never going to be shut. Now that's, again, very different from John's day. It was typical in a walled city first century, that they they would have walls, they would have gates, and they would shut those gates at nighttime. It wasn't to keep people in. It was to protect the people of the city. But here in the New Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, you don't need to be protected, because there's nothing that can harm you. So gates were, of course, closed at nightfall to keep criminals, invaders, potentially dangerous people from entering into the city. They would... They would like to do that under the cover of darkness, so hopefully they wouldn't be seen. But here in heaven, there's total security. Imagine what that's like. You'll never need to lock anything ever again. You won't have to shut stuff (laughs) like we do. There won't be alarm systems like when I came here this morning. You had to turn the alarm system on, make sure all the doors are locked. So that invaders don't get in. But this is going to be a place of rest, safety, and refreshment. And then notice verse 26. That that in heaven, the glory and honor of the nations are now going to be dissolved here into the eternal worship of God. It's not the worship of people and their accomplishments anymore. It's the worship of God. In verse 27, we see that everybody in heaven will be perfectly holy. Because notice God says, Every, uh, bec- because, why is that? Well, n- nothing unclean. Nobody who practices sin is going to ever come into the holy city. It's holy. It's unique. It's distinct. It's separate. And so the only one there is going to be, notice, those who have their names written in the book of life. This is a special book that God has for all believers. If you're a believer, your name is in the book of life. And that's how you get into heaven. Your name has to be there. And how you get your name in the book is by putting your faith in Christ alone, not in your good works or in anything else. If you try to get to heaven through your own good works, your name will not be in the book, and you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And so, as we come now here into chapter twenty-two, John's angelic tour guide showed him a river of the water of life. So, there is water in heaven. We saw earlier last week that there is no oceans and seas, but there is water. Because notice in heaven here, there's there's uh, water in this this river. It's it's clear as crystal. No no defects and impurities in the river. And again, it's it's all about reflecting the glory of God. Notice where the water's coming from. It says so right there. It's it's coming out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. He's the provider. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 22, it mentions that phrase in the middle of the street. It's best translated in the middle of its path. The tree of life is this heavenly counterpart to what we see in Genesis, the tree of life there in the Garden of Eden. So the Bible starts with a tree, and the Bible ends with a tree. Isn't that interesting? And this tree is providing for those who are immortal. You will not need the tree, because you are immortal. You don't need sleep, you don't need food, you don't need water. The tree of life was, a, by the way, a familiar Jewish concept. For a Jew, it expressed blessing. It was a blessing. Now, but this tree is, is different from a lot of trees, from all trees, in fact, that we're used to. Because notice the Bible says it bears twelve kinds of fruit. The idea is here it's just variety. It just shows the glory of God. Yet again, a God of variety gives the variety. And, and the use of the word month probably. By the way, it doesn't necessarily refer to time, since we're talking about the eternal state here. Time no longer exists in the eternal state, but it just helps us to understand this at least. And then John makes this very intriguing observation about the tree, about the leaves itself. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is heaven. Do nations need to be healed? At first glance, you look at that, it kind of seems confusing. Uh, You you might say, well, I thought heaven, there's no illness, there's no injuries, there's no pain and suffering. That's true. The Bible says so here. This word healing is the Greek word therapia. Sounds familiar to any English words? Therapia. We get an English word called therapy from that. By the way, that's not implying illness, but the idea here is it's life-giving. It's health-giving. And another word we get from that is therapeutic. It's therapeutic. So the leaves of the tree can be likened to supernatural vitamins, promoting general health. Let's end by looking at the privileges of its inhabitants in verse 3. Starting there in verse 3, some beautiful truths that we will enjoy. Because th- this is awesome. Well, i just got to read verse 3 again because it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Wow. <laughs> so John's kind of coming toward the the end of his heavenly tour here, and I couldn't help but notice John probably couldn't either. Life is very different here for the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem. The most dramatic change from the present earth that we have now is, notice there will no longer be any curse. Wow, that's really different. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we have been living under a curse from Genesis chapter 3, when mankind fell into sin. Adam took us there. We've been living in that ever since, but one day that curse will be removed. Sin will be removed. And all the consequences that come with sin will be removed. No longer any curse. So the removal of the curse will will then mean the, the end of all sorrow, pain, and even death itself will no longer exist. Though there will be no temple in the city, notice it is the throne of God and the Lamb that is going to be there. God the Father, Jesus Christ, are going to reign throughout all eternity. And since God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, I want you to notice at the end of verse 3 here says that his servants shall serve him. Heaven's not a boring place. You're not going to be sitting on clouds playing a harp all your for the eternity. That's boring. But it says his servants will serve him. They're gonna, we as believers will spend all eternity doing whatever God wants us to do. All the infinite variety of tasks that the limitless mind of God can possibly come up with, he will give you something to do. You will not be like my children who have occasionally said, I'm bored. I'm bored. That's terrible. You won't be saying that in heaven. Verse 4 reminds us that the saints in heaven will see God's face. You will actually be able to, to, to look into God's face and not be consumed. You will be able to do what Moses wanted to do when he was on the mountain. He wanted to see God. And God says, You can't handle my presence. You can't see me. You will be destroyed. So God hides him in a rock. And you get to see kind of the backside of my glory. And even then, he walks off the mountain, and he's just glowing. And, and all the people of Israel are saying, please, hide yourself, cover. I, we can't handle this. And now we'll be able to handle it. Because the curse of sin will be gone. they will be perfectly holy and righteous and be able to endure th- this blazing light of God's glory. I love what verse 4 says, that His name will be on their foreheads. We see that God has a personal possession. He knows you. He loves you. And like we do sometimes with our so-called earthly possessions. Have you ever written your name on anything? We often do that. Write our names. Sometimes we even have stamps like I do with my books. I love my books. So I got a special little stamp. And every one of my books, hopefully, there's a stamp. It says, this property or this book belongs to me. God's done that with you. He's identified you. He's put his, His stamp on you, showing that you belong to Him. That identification will leave no doubt as to who you belong to for all eternity. And then in verse 5, John repeats the earlier description here. We saw that uh, there's not going to be any night, no darkness. You won't need candles. You won't need light bulbs. Because notice, it's the Lord God that gives the light. So the eternal capital city of heaven, this new Jerusalem here, will be a place of indescribable, unimaginable beauty. I wish I had the words to do it justice, but I can't, and neither was John. But at least God gives us something to work with here. And so from the center of this, we see the brilliant glory of God shining forth through all this gold and all the precious stones illuminating the new heaven and the new earth. But the most glorious reality, let's not lose sight of this, my friends. Let's not focus on these the the stuff the gold the gems walls the amazing beauty but the most glorious reality of all will be sinful rebels who have been made righteous so that we are no longer cursed by sin but we can now enjoy intimate fellowship with God and we will we will love him and worship him with clean pure hearts and we will be with Him forever in this sheer joy. I want to end by just sharing how C.S. Lewis ended his Chronicles of Narnia series. I, I love what he says. If you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, you should. It's one of those things that every believer should do, in my opinion. But in the very last book, in the last page of the Chronicles of Narnia, after taking us on this beautiful journey, Lewis writes a wonderful quote that comes from a Christ-like figure in the book who has a name called Aslan. Aslan is a lion. And here's what he says, quote, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. He's This is the Christ-like figure talking to these people. And he said, There was a real railway accident. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them. That's the lion. So he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And as for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That ends the Chronicles of Narnia that aptly describes the eternal state for us. We will go on forever and ever. We will be with God and all the the, the rights and the privileges and the beauties and everything else that goes with that forever and ever. Being with the one who hopefully we long for now. We will be pilgrims no longer. But we will be home in the place that God calls us to. May God give us affections for Him, to be with Him, to live for Him even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this wonderful short description. We're thankful that we do know something of the eternal state and some things of the capital city of heaven. We're thankful that We will get to be with you for all eternity and serve you. We're thankful for your love, your grace, your majesty. Thank you for giving us a record here. Thank you for showing John these beautiful things. May we understand what we've read and believe with all of our heart what we've read. May these not be just fairy tales. May we understand that this is a real place. And that all believers will be with you for all eternity. And we really believe that. May we believe what we believe. And live like this. Longing to be with you. By your grace, we, your spirit, we ask you would transform our hearts. That, that uh, we would not have affections set on things on this earth. That our affections would be on you Cause us to love you with all of our hearts, our soul, our mind, our strength, and our entire being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.